and welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We are Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is Shiloh's main leader, head pastor, and I, Adrian, am the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith inspired from the previous Sunday's sermon. We're going pulpit to podcast. We hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. This week's episode, we'll be talking about Andrew. So Pastor Dan, I tried to do some research on Andrew, but I didn't come up with a whole lot on him in the gospel. Mm. It said that he's only listed about 12 times in the New Testament, and only four times was he kind of a main character or of significant mention versus just being the name in the list. But... Basically, we know a few pieces of information about him. Um, he was the first one called to Jesus's ministry, and they termed that protokletos. Did I say that correctly? Sounds good to me. Cool. And that just means like first called. I thought that was a fun word. We know that he studied under John the Baptist, and then he told his brother, Simon Peter, that Jesus was the Messiah. So he was the first one to claim that Jesus was the Messiah, mm-hmm. which was quite a claim back then in their times. I mean, that was that was a big deal. Yeah. We've been talking a lot in youth group about how about their culture, about what it was like, and about the gravity of even Jesus himself claiming to be the Messiah. The, that was a sentence of death. Yeah. And so for Andrew to say, hey, brother, I found the Messiah, that's a big deal. That took, so, that took a lot of courage for him to say that. Yeah. Um, and I just love this scene in The Chosen. Honestly, I mean, we could probably ask them if they wanted to sponsor this podcast as much as we talk <laughs> about The Chosen. <laughs> but well, I love it. I mean, we probably have to get in line. I, I have yeah. a feeling they're doing such a good job at what they're doing there at Angel Studios that uh, they don't... Uh, they probably have more requests for such things than they can handle. Oh, but, I'm sure. But I'm, I, sure. I'm glad to promote that. Uh, if, you, if you haven't watched The Chosen, uh, all I can say is that it's phenomenal. Um, heck, I was just checking on an Amazon order this morning, and you can now watch The Chosen on Amazon Prime. It's on Netflix. It's on Roku. It's... Uh, basically something that has become uh i've lost the word i'm looking for it's become a social phenomenon it it is not just limited to christians you know and if you recall when it first started uh the chosen was crowdfunded and you had to get the app to watch it Mm -hmm. and now big time streaming companies are lining up to, you know, because they see profit in it, you know, that may, may or may not set well with us, but let's face it, you know, when, when they figure out that that thing is so popular that they need to carry it in order to continue to be competitive in their market, that's awesome. And the beautiful thing is, is it doesn't matter what their motivations are. When you watch this program, it has transformational power. Because it is as powerful in its own way as giving a Bible to someone who's never read any scripture, you know, Mm -hmm. it's profound. Yeah, I might even go out on a limb and say it's life-changing. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the gospel is life-changing. So to see it portrayed 
in such a beautiful way um, is awesome. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a fan and I probably talk like a fan, but I think from my position as a pastor and the sort of responsibility I feel for, for guiding people under my care uh, properly, you know, I know that there will be hardcore legalistic Christians who will take issue with the chosen and they've come out of the woodwork because after all, it's very Christ-like to criticize other Christians. Sarcasm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll never understand Christians criticizing Christians. There are times when we are called to our brothers and sisters in Christ to offer corrective and uh, and beneficial interaction for the sake of the gospel. And these are things that are done in love and they are very carefully entered into. But Christians who just spend time arguing about everything and criticizing everything, especially other believers, um, they're not serving Christ. But I digress. So the chosen is imaginative. And I know you want to talk about Andrew. And what I'm going to tell you when we talk about Andrew is, is that you use uh, what my friend Frank Viola likes to call a sanctified imagination. And I like that term because sanctified imagination means that the Holy Spirit is informing your imagination. And, you know, I've got a lot of uh, I've got a lot of progress over the last 28 years teaching people from the Bible with my sanctified imagination. And uh, that's what we'll be talking about, of course, when we think on the uh, story of Andrew. But going back to The Chosen, they have done a phenomenal job of bringing the gospel stories to life and not betraying anything in scripture that would change our doctrine or our theology of salvation. You know, in other words, all of the core things that define what Christianity is have been carefully maintained in this show. What they've done is filled in gaps in our understanding so that we can get a sense of context. You know, the problem we have when we read the Bible is, is that without any imagination or without being informed about cultural norms and things like that, I mean, you just said that the big thing that makes uh, Andrew's announcement to his brother that he's found the Messiah so profound is, is that's a dangerous thing to say. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to lose all your credibility and get canceled. You know, in that culture, right? You know, the cancel culture is nothing new. There are always radically uh, uh, angry people who are eager to cancel you when you don't support their agenda. And it it was that way back then, too. And the funny thing is, is there were a lot of people who were really looking for the Messiah, but they canceled everybody that claimed to be the Messiah, even the actual Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's context. And the beautiful thing about The Chosen is is that it's giving you an entire context. It's showing you the the earthiness of the people in this story. And, and, And you realize that even though you're watching people who 
don't dress the way we do because of the times they live in and the type of textiles they had access to because of the climate that they lived in. They don't dress like us. They do certain things and uh, function within the limitations of their technology. Other than that, they're just like us. Because if you really think about it, historically speaking, there's nothing different between people who lived 2,000 years ago and people today except technology. That's all that's different. You know, we have all kinds of synthetic uh, uh, textiles and things that we have a clothes uh, made out of. And, and uh, you know, thank goodness, because you can enjoy my company more if I'm wearing a wicking T-shirt. Trust me. But... You know what? In those days, they wore wool, which is actually the original wicking material. It's a wonderful material. And people don't realize wool is as good in the heat as it is in the cold. And so what's the difference? You know, Peter wore a wicking tunic and I wear a wicking, wicking tunic, you know. So the point I'm trying to make is, is that the beautiful thing about The Chosen is that it tells the story in such an authentic way that you can relate to the characters and you can relate to their experience and you begin to see the, the, the majesty of it. I I've always referred to God as the great majestic genius, that there's a majesty to God's genius. It isn't enough that God is the, the, the creator of everything that is and the one who wrote DNA from his mind, right? You know, it's, there's a majesty to it. There's a glorious sovereignty to it that, that is beyond beautiful. And so what I love about The Chosen is, is that it presents us with a really majestic, uh, elegant, beautiful, flowing story that invites people to know Jesus and the best part is, is that back in the day when I was a teenager and I was talking about Jesus to my friends, because I did, because I was a square. <laughs> That's what we called them back then. Uh, because I wasn't a hyper-religious kid, but I was always, in fact, the way I grew up, as you know, we both raised Catholic, and, and the way I grew up, I didn't, I didn't talk about my faith in the way that I encountered when I moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, talking about my faith was not uncommon, but it was also not culturally, it was very culturally bland. It, it, people didn't care one way or the other. If you talked about your faith, there wasn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of people in our neighborhood who went to the Southern Baptist Church and uh, got, got prizes for bringing their friends to church on Sunday. But when I moved to Oklahoma, holy smokes, I got invited to church so many times, and, and I was more inclined to go with pretty girls than, than fellas from school. And, and, you know, it was a totally different environment. But my faith life was present even in a more sort of... Uh, of, uh, I don't know what you call it. Just a, it just like where I grew up in Pittsburgh, there were lots and lots of Catholic, but there were Orthodox, there were Jews, there were lots of people had ancient religions that they practiced. And their religion was 
very personal and yet everyone knew everybody else who had the same religion. I was odd because I actually talked about Jesus like he was a real human being and the son of God and I actually believed in him in a way that wasn't necessary in order for you to have a religion. <laughs> if you get what I mean, I think you do because it's something we talk about. We talk about Christian Christianity in the context of our, our Roman Catholic upbringing. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. it, but, but it isn't limited to Catholics. It's every Christ follower who calls themselves a Christian um, can go for years practicing a religion without actually having a relationship with the center of every part of it. And I just always did. I, I, when I was a little kid, I always had a sense of God's presence. I just always felt the Lord in my life. And then when I moved to Oklahoma, you know, I found out that there is a whole different world of religion that still has basically the same problem. And it turns out that Southern Baptists and uh, Pentecostals and Mormons and uh, you know, all manner of, of Bible Belt sort of evangelicals turned out that they were just as likely to have a religion without a Jesus, mm. you know, without a personal relationship with Jesus. And by the grace of God, I, I used to, I haven't told this story in ages, but You'll appreciate it, Adrian, because it comes from the fact that that I was raised in a in a in a very old version of the Catholic tradition, and and I had an aunt Tilly. It was my dad's aunt, actually, and he adored her, and so I adored Aunt Tilly, and she was just the sweetest lady. And I don't remember a time when she wasn't old, but I suppose that couldn't have been possible. But to me, she was just always old, and. Uh, but Aunt Tilly went to church and said the rosary every day. And she lit candles and prayed for me and a whole bunch of other people. And there have been many times in my life when I've credited Aunt Tilly's prayers for things that happened or didn't happen to me, you know? And I often think, well, you know, it's entirely possible that one of the reasons that I was always aware of God's presence in my life was Aunt Tilly's prayers and other people's prayers too. So I, this is a word to the wise. And again, I talked about parenting last Sunday and I can tell you that I pray for my children and I have prayed for them. I prayed for my children before I had children. Mm -hmm. You know, I prayed that the children I might have someday would have certain things and and so I really believe in the importance of praying for your children and praying for the young people in your lives because because I think those prayers make a difference and the reason I think so is because I've lived it I've lived it man I have been on the edge of disaster man I've skated around on thin ice and heard it cracking under my feet I I have literally uh you know been at great personal risk of injury or death I've had every kind of temptation thrown at me in one time or another in my life. I've had different injuries and, 
and uh, uh, effects on my spirit and my my mental health. And somehow God's presence has always been there and has always gotten me through. And I just think what a gift that is that I was given. And, And so bringing that all the way back around to The Chosen is this series has this touch of God in it that you can't miss that, that makes you, you realize that, that when people seek God, God responds. I don't know which came first, my sense of God's presence in my life or God's presence in my life. I suspect if I had to choose, I would choose God making the, you know, taking the initiative, right? Because of Antilles prayers or something. So no doubt God took the initiative and I felt his hand even when I was five or six years old. You know, when I was six years old, I rode my bicycle down our country lane and pulled right out in front of a motorcycle that was flying past and, uh, and I almost died and I got hit right square, you know, destroyed my bike, launched me into the air. My brothers and my cousins were all waiting for me because they finally agreed that I could go along with them on their bike ride. And then one of the neighbor boys was showing off, you know, because there was a group of boys on bicycles. And so he's coming by on his motorcycle, you know, and it just was a tragic, tragic collision of things. And so for three days it was touch and go. And then it was questions about whether I was going to come out of it alive. And if I did, what kind of condition I'd be in. And see, now you know why I'm so weird, you know. (laughs) Weird. All that drain bramage. (laughs) Anyway, I'm joking. But but see, I can remember after that, you know, I was at home. uh, And my mother had just had my little sister. And, uh, And I can remember, you know, being off from school, I guess I was in the second grade, so maybe I was about seven, I don't know, six or seven. But I uh, I can remember being home recovering and being out in our front yard in this little country home we lived in, and, and uh, my folks had dug a pond and it was filling up, you know, at the time, and, and uh, I would go down and sit in the boat that was in the half-filled pond and I would just sit there and you know looked like a mummy I was wrapped in gauze and you know most of my injuries were on my head and face and and um, and I just would sit there and I tell you the truth I, I can remember then just feeling God's presence you know I just and I still love to sit outside you know I do it every day but um, you know, so, so not sure why I went off on that tangent originally, but I think it was just to say that I see people I can relate to in the chosen and I see how they made the Jesus that I've always known come to life and that the people in my childhood who presented Jesus as this mysterious and almost unreal sort of person who was always so serious and so 
pale and and lifeless and and that's not the Jesus I grew up with. When I felt God's presence in my life, it it, it was a relationship with somebody like the Jesus that's portrayed in The Chosen. And then when I became someone who taught others about Jesus, that's the Jesus I described, you know? That's the Jesus that that I always knew. And so, you know, like I said, when people talk about being Christian, it's surprising how few of them really talk about having a relationship with Christ. And if you ask me what a relationship with Christ looks like, all I can say is, is how does a six-year-old know that God is with him? Because there's a relationship. And what does that even mean? I don't know. I suspect that even while my mother was nursing my little sister in the house up the hill from where I was alone in the boat in front of our house down in the pond that was half full, wrapped like a mummy, I bet my mother was watching me. And she was keeping an eye on me and making sure I was okay. And I sort of knew it. And that's because I have a relationship with my mother, a mother and child, you know what I'm saying? And so when people try to figure out what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, my, my answer is, is, is he real to you or is he a historical figure? If you're trying to figure out whether you have a relationship with him, you have to ask yourself if you can have a relationship with George Washington. Because if you say, well, of course you can't. And then you ask them if they think of Jesus the same way they think of George Washington, then there's your problem. Because Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. Now, ascent is a, is a sort of human interpretation of whatever it was they experienced that day on the Mount of Olives. But the reality is, is that we live in a sort of terrarium called space-time. And reality, the ultimate reality, is outside of our little bubble that we live in. And the fact is, is that we've got all this evidence in Scripture that tells us that God periodically opens the veil between outside space-time and inside space-time. And that's when angels talk to shepherds in the middle of the night. That's when stars shine over the Christ child. That's when John of Patmos sees the door open and there's this light shining from behind Jesus that makes him look like this glowing figure. We, we see fire that looks like a burning bush, but it's not a burning bush. It's a hole in the fabric of space-time that happens to be in the vicinity of a bush. And, and so it's like we live in, you know, and some people describe it as the Matrix movies, you know, but that's even getting to be an old reference. But it's just the idea that there is this place we live in that feels like reality, but it's actually not the ultimate reality. It's a place within the reality that God maintains. The scripture tells us that Jesus is the one that's holding it all together. That, that there's a sense that, that we, I don't mean to say that we should take this literally, but why not? Jesus is like holding the sphere that we live in in his hands. And, and people can't see me, but I'm modeling it here, you know, kind of making it like I'm holding a giant ball, 
you know, there's a wonderful hymn uh, in the hymnal that describes the terrestrial ball and how Jesus is the one who's holding it together. And, and then in the book of Revelation, you have this description of Jesus sort of letting go. And then the angels are actually going to take over like the four corners as though Jesus can hold it all together with his hands, but it takes four big angels to hold back what he held. And, and this is when the calamity that is the, the uh, apocalypse really starts to happen, right? So, so we live in this, this world of space-time that seems to us like every reality there is, and yet it's really just a place within the ultimate reality called space-time. And I don't know, remind me why I went off on that tangent, because it's just coming back to the chosen and my idea of what it is to have a relationship with, with Christ is, is like, like, that's the guy I know. That's the guy I know. And he's just like right on the other. I was talking about the ascension, right? He, he just stepped in. You know, they could say he ascended and maybe that's what it looked like to them. But basically, the fabric of space-time opened up, and he stepped through. And he's right here. Jesus is right here, right now. And if he lives outside of space-time, that that means that he's as here now as he was when he was filming The Chosen, right? (laughs) I mean, he's as real as to us as he was to them, because there is no time and space where he is now. And so we have this Holy Spirit, which is basically him saying, if I go back to where I came from, then I can send myself in a way where you can all know me all the time, anywhere, any place, and experience me in a very personal way that you wouldn't be able to do if I remained in the flesh the way I did for the season when I was walking the earth. So this Jesus is not a historical figure. This Jesus is here now. He's engaged with us now, unless we don't want to be engaged with him. And there's a lot of people who claim to be his followers who don't really want to be engaged with him. In fact, they feel threatened by it. They feel threatened by him engaging with them because then they're liable to get told that they're doing something wrong or that they should be doing something hard or that, you know, who knows what. Yeah, you know, so it's kind of like I'd rather have a religion and, you know, I mean, isn't it funny? It's, it's like I've traveled abroad and, and, you know, there were people on every trip I've ever made overseas who the first thing they wanted to find wherever they went is a hamburger, <laughs> you know, because we are people who prefer to go to something like McDonald's where we can be assured that no matter which McDonald's we go to, a Big Mac is a Big Mac. That it's always predictable. And to live in a world where Jesus is alive and he's ruling over us in, in a positive way. He's, he's my benevolent friend who tells me what's best and encourages me to be my best and and, uh, and allows me to, to be flawed, but at the same time, he challenges me to be better every day. And this we call sanctification. Well, he's going to ask me to try something new quite frequently. And he's going to always push me out of my comfort zone. 
And the vast majority of people who rather who would rather have a religion than a relationship with Christ are people who prefer comfort. And they would prefer McDonald's than risk going to a restaurant where they might get something they're not sure they're going to like. Um, so, you know, the two things that seem to really bring people down and stop them from being the best Christian person they can be are pride and comfort. And so what about Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think the character of Andrew gives us comfort because as you talked about in the sermon, he is most likely Simon Peter's younger brother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so in this um, family, what is it? The birth order book. Yeah. That you mentioned on Sunday, uh, the, the second born or the middle child is like the peacemaker. And I think that the chosen does a great job portraying the character of Andrew in, I don't know his name, whoever they cast it, but he does a great job of always being there and being this like steady, constant, his, his emotion doesn't change very much. Mm -hmm. He's, he's a peacemaker. He's just there. And several times, I mean, he picks up on things that are going on in the room and he's very aware. Um, and I love that about him, Andrew. Yeah. Um, while we don't know a whole, whole lot about him, we can use our, like you said, sanctified imagination and imagine like who he was and his role in the relationship between Jesus and all of his disciples. Mm -hmm. And I think Jesus gives us an excellent um, story, I guess, or, or an excellent model of all these casts of characters and his disciples. And you talked about relatability. I think there's some sort of relatability in at least one of the disciples that we right. can find, right? I mean, who doesn't want to hear, like we talked about last week, someone who messes up royally, mm -hmm. royally. I mean, we're talking defies God and sells him out for a couple of pieces of silver, and yet Jesus comes back to him in this beautiful way. Wow! Wait a minute. You you you've messed uh, you. This is an error that I need to correct in Christian love because okay. there will be people who will respond negatively to what you just said. It you, was Judas. You mixed Judas yeah, and Peter. Totally did. <laughs> so Judas betrayed Jesus for silver, and nothing more is said about Judas except that he died horrifically. Peter, on the other hand, bet that he would never betray Jesus, and then he did, and then he repented of it, and Jesus met him with un unimaginable grace and love, which I know is what you meant to say. Right. But I don't want you to get any bad press. True. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but I think the, the thought is still there. The yeah. heart is still there. So... Um, Peter messes up royally, and then Jesus comes back to him and says, hey, I still love you. Yes. I still love you. And, I mean, who doesn't want to hear that? Yes. Who doesn't need to hear that? When mm -hmm. you mess up, God still loves you. And so with Andrew, I mean, he, 
he's the first called. He's this courageous guy. He studies under John the Baptist, and he just immediately drops his net and says, Jesus, you're my teacher. You're my Messiah. I'm all in. And he's just so comforting and loving. And I don't know. I've just grown to love each character, each disciple, as we've talked about them. Character, like we're talking about a movie or something. Well, well but that's okay. Kind of. Um, but you I just know. have grown fond of Andrew in the past few days of, of thinking more about him. You know, Sunday I mentioned in the message that one of the cool things about this study of the apostles that we're doing is, is that it's like watching an ensemble cast on a television show. The beautiful thing about an ensemble cast is, is that you keep watching because there are several subplots running at once and there are characters you're more invested in than others, which is a really great form of writing and producing and presenting entertainment. And it turns out there's nothing new under the sun. God did it first in the Bible, and Jesus did it. He presented us with this amazing ensemble cast called the apostles. And then the disciples who came along with them, and, and, and the distinction between apostles is the, there were the 12 that Jesus called specifically. And then there are the whole list of disciples, some more faithful than others, who never left his side either. And that included some wonderful women. You know, and thank God for that. And the Chosen does a magnificent job of presenting us with the women who followed him and their incredible role that they played. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's just, and Andrew in particular, you know, I drew on the birth order book. And I swear if, if you know, because I know from watching behind the scenes videos and things that the Chosen has a number of scholars that they consult with. And, and they have Jewish scholars, they have Christian scholars, and I don't know, if I had to guess, I'd say somebody read the birth order book. And because, because they've created these, these brother characters for Peter and, and James, who are part of the three-person inner circle. Well, actually, James's brother John is, is one of the, the three that Jesus kind of has as his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And it's interesting because Andrew isn't in that inner circle, but James's brother John is. And we'll talk about him this coming week, James, that is. But what's interesting is, you know, Andrew is someone we don't know a lot about from Scripture, but we can draw some pretty reasonable conclusions, which is what you're alluding to. And I, I was referring to this book by... Uh, uh, Levin, um, I just forgot his first name suddenly. Um, Kevin. Kevin, thank Kevin you. Kevin Yeah, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his last name, but um, but anyway, yeah, I have this. I have the book open here. I I have a copy in front of me, a Kindle copy, and he is very. Um, uh, he, this book has been profound. I mean, I first read it as an assignment for college or something, and then I read it again as an assignment for seminary, and, and I've referred to it often because I have five children. My wife's the oldest of eight. I'm the fourth of five children, and I have found it all just fascinating and revealing. I know you're an only child, and what's really amazing is how accurate this is and how consistent it is. 
And so the premise of how we figured out, how I figured out what kind of person I think Andrew was had everything to do with the fact that his big brother, I'm sure was the big brother because he acts the part of the eldest brother, right? He acts like the oldest son. And that's Peter. And here's what Levin says about the firstborns. They're perfectionists. They're reliable. They're conscientious. They're list makers. They're well-organized. They're hard-driving, natural leaders, critical, serious, scholarly, logical, don't like surprises, you know? And you kind of see that with Peter. Everything he does just seems to be that way, uh, impulsive, you know? And then the next born is a mediator, compromising, diplomatic, avoids conflict, independent, loyal to peers, has many friends, a maverick, secretive, used to not having attention. I mean, that's, who, that's what I think Andrew is. And I decided that was probably the case because, you know, Peter's running the business. Andrew's off checking out the new preacher. Creepy John, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and uh, that's a reference to the chosen, by yeah. the way. In case. <laughs> and and so isn't it interesting? Um, and then he, he Levin says, just for the record, because because people might be interested, that the youngest, or uh, yeah, generally the youngest are manipulative, charming, like to blame others, attention seekers. They're tenacious. They're people, people, they're natural salespeople, they're precocious, engaging, affectionate, they love surprises. And then there's this one, might seem familiar to you. A little adult by the age of seven, very thorough and deliberate, high achiever, self-motivated, fearful, cautious, voracious reader, black and white thinker, Talking extremes, can't bear to fall, fail, has very high expectations for self and more comfortable with people who are older or younger. There's no way that can be the only child one, right? Well, it sort of fits. Like that one kind of describes me pretty effectively too. Is, is um, you know, so an only child... Wait, sorry, which is the one that you just read? All the one I just days? read would be the youngest. Oh, I'm okay. sorry. Got it. Now, the only child, the only child, let's see here. Yeah, because I was reading like like the, the, the way it describes the, uh, uh, yeah, see, I'm just looking at the preview of the book. He gets into more depth and, and, sh and, and fleshes it out better. Um, like here, for example, the presidents and pastors are often firstborns. Not me, hmm. but I'm not like a lot of pastors. <laughs> uh, I, I'm trying to, I, I shouldn't have gotten this book out and tried to, to, to reference it here. But um, lastborns are, uh, you know, I don't fit what it says about lastborns. And yet in some ways I was a youngest because of the, my sister didn't come along till eight years after me. But anyway, this is all just taken from the introductory part of, of his book. But, but I used this, 
Um, I think I just skidded all over the road here, but I used this as a way of sort of devising a vision of who Andrew was. And then I found myself coming back to it this week because my next character is James. I call him Jimmy Z because he's James, son of Zebedee. The Chosen calls him Big James. Um, but he's Jimmy Z and his little brother's Johnny Z. And the fact is, is that I've came back to this, this birth order book as a way of getting a sense of who these guys might have been because we don't have much to inform our imagination other than the work they left for us to read, which John was prolific and James was somewhat less prolific. But then the stories about them give us insights into their personalities. And the thing we're trying to do ultimately when we read scripture is bring it to life and find ourselves in it because the next thing you do after you have a relationship with Christ is you want to learn who you are in Christ. And this is, this is why discipleship is so important. And I've, I've tried to explain this a lot in the church lately, and I seem to have failed in some ways because I've made a lot of people uncomfortable because I talk a lot about being on a discipleship pathway, and many of them think, that what I'm saying is, is that they're not doing it right and that I've got a plan they can follow that'll make them do it right. And, well, all I can say is, is that there have been times throughout my ministry career when I've made comfortable religious people feel that I don't think they're doing it right. <laughs> and I have to say, well, you're right and you're wrong about that. I don't think of myself as someone who has the authority to tell you you're doing it wrong. So in other words, you might be thinking that Pastor Dan is judging you, but the truth is, is I don't want to judge you. I don't want to be judgmental because I consider that a very poor expression of Christianity. Just said, I don't like it when I hear Christians criticize one another. So when I say to people, things that make them feel that I'm judging them and finding them inadequate, it bothers me because I would never do that consciously. I would never consciously say, you're inferior as a Christian because all you do is come to church on Sunday and warm a pew for an hour and go home. On the other hand, I will say to people in love, if all you do is come to church and sit in a pew for an hour and go home and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're missing out on all the real benefits of being a child of God through Jesus Christ. It's, it's like I'm not judging anybody. I'm simply provoking and, and, and encouraging them to seek more in their life with Christ because of vast majority of religious Christians I know are really in it for the, uh, the insurance policy that guarantees you're going to heaven when you die. And, you know, we all buy insurance so that we're protected against risks that we don't think we have the capacity to respond to. 
Now, if you're independently wealthy, you don't need to buy insurance. If you wreck your car, you get a new one or you get it fixed. But if you don't have the capacity to replace your car or repair your car when it gets wrecked, then you buy insurance. Someone else takes the risk for you. And that is exactly how a lot of religious Christians treat Jesus. They treat him like an insurance policy. He took the risk for you so that you could be insured that you'd go to heaven when you die, whether you deserve to or not. And that's a pretty cold-hearted way to treat your Savior. And a lot of people treat Jesus that way. And they use religion as a way to keep their premiums up. You know? Um, and, and like there are term life insurance policies where you want to pay on time every month and don't miss a payment because one day you're going to get that money back. It's going to have cash value, you know? And... Uh, and that's the way people treat Jesus, you know. So when I tell people that I want them to be actively engaged with Jesus as disciples of Jesus, like the ones on The Chosen who are interacting with him and engaging with him and who he is and how his leadership in their lives changes the way they respond to things, I'm encouraging them to do that because, first of all, it's it's kind of criminal to, re, to, to, to treat him with such disrespect as to ask him to simply be there when you need an, an escape plan, you know, to, to treat him like your lifeboat that never is seen or touched or encountered until you need it. And that's kind of criminal, really, because he died on the cross thinking of you and thinking that this would be your salvation. He has that capacity. He's God, so his mind operates outside of space and time, which means he can be looking at you from the cross right now, just as surely as he was looking at his own mother, his earthly mother, you know, because he's transcendent. And so you need to feel a little guilt. You need to feel a little shame. And Pastor Dan needs to make you uncomfortable once in a while for your own sake. And you can be mad at me for being the one who delivered the message that makes you feel guilty. But the truth is, is it's the message that's making you feel guilty, not me. And the truth is, is I to the best of my human ability, which is flawed, am not in any way committed to judging you. I, I don't need to do that. I don't want to do that. I, I, I want the Lord to hear me plainly saying, do not let me judge others because that's your job. Now, that doesn't mean I don't get angry with people and frustrated with people who do things that hurt me or, or, or frustrate my life. And in those moments, I probably sin in judgment. But in my capacity as the pastor and the preacher, I don't, I mean, my wife will tell you, I am, I get, I get very upset with myself if I come down from the pulpit and I feel like I might have gotten a little mad while I was up there. 
I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but once in a while I'll be thinking about something or somebody and I'll say something in the sermon that I felt was pointed. And that, oh boy, do I feel conviction when I do that. Most of the time, nobody knows. But it's what I was feeling in my heart when I said it that I'm feeling bad about. So I don't want anybody to think that I judge them when I tell them that I want them to get more out of their relationship with Christ. And that if they don't have a relationship with Christ or if they treat Christ like a lifeboat or an insurance policy, they've missed something vital about what it means to be a Christian. I, if that makes you feel bad, I'm sorry, but I tell you that because I care about you. And more than that, I know that Jesus loves you and wants a real living relationship with you. And you may not be able to imagine what that's like because you've never experienced it. But the only way I can tell you to find out what that is like is just go ahead and try. Start by saying, Jesus, I know you're real, alive, here and now. That the only thing that is keeping me from seeing your physical presence is the veil of space-time. And therefore, I want you to reach through in some way that makes me know that you and I are in a real relationship with each other. Just invite him and then be willing to take whatever happens. And it probably won't be anything spooky, but you got to believe that his, his challenges, his tests, his... His, uh, uh, his, the discomforts that he invites you to try, you know, the, you, you got to believe that those aren't bad. And, and we have to stop being afraid of the unknown. That's what faith is all about. So, yeah, I don't know what that has to do with Andrew exactly, except to say that, you know, Andrew by virtue of what's not said about him, is one of the guys who didn't get out of the boat when Peter did. He's one of the guys who was asleep when Jesus was in the garden and needed his friends, especially his closest friends. <laughs> He's one of the guys who scattered, but Peter was the guy who followed him right up to Herod's back door. And then had to deny him because he'd gotten really close to the danger. But where were the other guys? Where was Andrew? Hiding. Mm. You know? See, we get Peter all wrong. I don't want to go back to Peter, but I'm just saying we get Peter all wrong because, because his stories look like failures, but he's also the guy who's doing what nobody else is willing to do. He walks right up to the face of danger, you know? I mean, he, he, he's the guy who gets out of the boat. He's the guy that follows Jesus all the way to the, to, I said Herod's back door, but it's Caiaphas's back door. I, I misspoke. Um, he, he's the one who's right there outside the door where Jesus is being taken in to be tried by the religious authorities who would have probably arrested him too if they knew who he was. So why did he lie about who he was? Because he didn't want to be identified and arrested. Now, we can only guess at what that was. But my point is, is what do we know about Andrew? We know that as a second born, he might have been certain things. But at the end of the day, he was also a flawed human being who needed redemption after the resurrection 
as much as any of them did. Peter's the archetype. He's the one that we see taking the the blow for the team. You know, he's taking it for the team. But who among those disciples of Jesus didn't need to be forgiven for not believing that he meant I will die and rise again? They all needed to believe that. And they all struggled with the concept. Mary, who found Jesus's empty tomb, she wasn't expecting to find him alive. She was expecting to see his dead body. And then when he's alive in front of her, she can't believe it's him. Now, to her credit, as soon as it's revealed that it's him, she believes. Whereas Thomas has to touch the wounds to be convinced. So which among the apostles is a person that isn't like us? Because they all are. And some of them are more like us than others. And we're all people who need to believe that Jesus is alive and wants a relationship with us now, who wants to say, just like he did to the apostles, I'll meet you in Galilee. Jesus wants to say to you, listener, I'll meet you wherever. And you got to believe that he can and he will. And the only thing that you have to do that the apostles didn't have to do is be willing to experience him in a spiritual way that isn't necessarily going to feel physical. But I can tell you from personal experience, it's real. You were worried about where this was going to go today. And it seems like we're filling the hour. <laughs> yes, my, my, so. my precious friend, Adrian, is sick today. And she's wearing a mask. And if you don't know Adrian, what you need to know is she has the most contagious, pretty smile. And... And it's such, a, it's such a shame to sit and talk with her and not be able to see that smile because she has a contagious smile. And it's why I call her sunshine because when she's smiling, it feels like sunshine. And uh, I think she was a little afraid that because of her sickness uh, that she, you know, that we might not have as good a podcast as ever, but, you know. Well, thank you for that. Prompt me and I'll probably talk for an hour anyway. <laughs> well, I think I'll go ahead and close this out for today. Um, I did want to finish with some, I guess, alleged words of Andrew, because I think these are so beautiful and I found them in my research and I just wanted to share them. So basically, to end this, Andrew um, died by crucifixion, but he refused to be crucified like Jesus. So um, they did the X shape for him, mm -hmm. and they bound him to the cross instead of nailing him to the cross. And so there's a piece of writing. It's actually an apocryphal text. An apocryphal means that it's a story or statement about, or it's of doubtful authenticity, but widely accepted as being true. So I just wanted to preface that with that. Um, but this writing is called the Acts of Andrew, and it says that these are Andrew's final words as he's hanging on the cross. So Andrew says, 
Hail, O cross, inaugurated by the body of Christ and adorned with his limbs as though they were precious pearls. Before the Lord mounted you, you inspired an earthly fear. Now instead, endowed with heavenly love, you are accepted as a gift. Believers, know of the great joy that you possess and of the multitude of gifts you have prepared. I come to you, therefore, confident and joyful, so that you too may receive me exultant as a disciple of the one who was hung upon you. O blessed cross, clothed in the majesty and beauty of the Lord's limbs, take me, carry me far from men, and restore me to my teacher, so that through you, the one who redeemed me by you, may receive me. Hail, O cross. Yes, hail indeed. Mm. The beautiful way to end a beautiful person's life. You know, and it's very fitting, given what we've been talking about, that the problem so many people have with giving up their religion to follow Christ is that it always involves taking up your cross, which is exactly what Jesus said we have to do. You know, my life hasn't been my own since I gave it to Christ. And it's just like my morning. You know, I came in today. Uh, I had a different plan for this morning. And for love of my my you know, family member who needed some help with something, I changed my plans. I don't have any regrets about that, you know. Um, we all have to take up our cross, and thankfully most of us will never endure physical torture like that. But, you know, what a what a beautiful way to sum up what we've been talking about, which is the importance of having a relationship with Christ instead of a religion about Christ. And with that, we'll talk to you next week. Bye.